Sean had suffered with a loose bowel since he was 17, with every year it kept getting worse, and by 55, Sean suspected that he might have celiac disease. However, after a few appointments with a specialist, it turned out that he in fact had a condition commonly known as the Celtic Curse. This condition meant that he was absorbing too much iron to a point where there was a risk of it causing damage to his internal organs. Upon diagnosis, Sean had to undergo treatment. This initially involved travelling to Mater Hospital in Dublin and having a pint of blood removed every week. After removing the blood, Sean's face would become less flushed and his energy levels would rise. Sean's entire family was tested to see if anyone else had the curse. None of his children were affected, and of his eight siblings, two of his brothers had the curse as well. This was good to find, as the vague symptoms of the Celtic curse make diagnosis tricky. Everyone affected is receiving treatment to help maintain their health. So, if you are low energy, have a constantly flushed face, and a host of other vague symptoms, you might in fact have the Celtic curse. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host Anthony. And I'm Juliet. Well, that was dramatic. Yeah, I know. It's it's one of those ones where the, the common name hosts itself well to a story. You didn't just make up that name? No. Oh, I thought you were just being super over the top. No, this condition is commonly known as the Celtic Curse. Wow. What is it actually called? So what we're actually covering today is hemochromatosis. Okay, hemo is from the Greek for blood. Chromatosis? In my head that's related to colour. Or pigment maybe? Yeah. So hemochromatosis is an inherited condition where iron levels of the body slowly build up over many years and then you end up with what's known as iron overload. So it might be that Iron is a really important part of the blood, and I think for a while, because of that rust colour that you think of, it was considered to be what coloured blood. Oh, okay. So, too much iron. That's the opposite of anemia? Yes, really. Okay. So, what happens if you have too much iron in your blood? I thought it was a good thing to have. Well, as with everything, you know, you can have too much of it. Just like how if you don't have enough water, you die of dehydration. If you have the right amount of water, you feel healthy, rejuvenated, young. (laughs) What are we doing? Making an ad for Evian? How do you say that? Evian. Evian? Oh, that sounds dumb. No, we're not making any adverts. They wouldn't pay us. (laughs) But no, but if you have too much water, obviously depending on how much, you can either have water toxicity or you can drown. You can drown yourself? Well, yeah. Have you seen what happens when someone falls into a pool face first? No, I mean by drinking too much water. Okay, iron. What does too much iron do? 
Well, first, I think I probably need to tell you why we have iron in the body. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> so, remember how I told you that blood has a protein called hemoglobin in it? Yes, definitely. Well, hemoglobin is what you use to carry oxygen from your lungs around your body. Okay. And then carbon dioxide from your tissue through the blood back to the lungs so you breathe it out. So you need hemoglobin? Yes. Now, iron is what hemoglobin uses to carry the oxygen. So without iron, hemoglobin would be useless. And without iron, you can't make hemoglobin. Okay, so you need iron to get oxygen anywhere in your body. Yes. Okay, so why would too much iron be a bad thing? Too much iron's toxic. Toxic? Yeah, poisonous. Also, if you have lots of iron, some bacteria grow really well in it, and then they can cause horrible infections. Toxic, but you need it in your hemoglobin. It's about having the right amount. It's like how you can have just enough of a painkiller to get rid of the pain, or you could overdose. Okay. So the difference between something essential and something toxic can often be the dose. Okay. And as a result of having too much, you can get these kinds of symptoms. So people with hemochromatosis typically start getting symptoms between the ages of 30 and 60. And the initial common symptoms include feeling fatigued all the time, like really tired. So quite similar to anemia which obviously can make diagnosis difficult. But anemia is the opposite. Yes, which means you have to be very careful with your blood tests if someone's fatigued, because you don't want to give someone with hemochromatosis iron. Other symptoms that you can get are weight loss, weakness, and joint pain, which are also parallel with anemia, and irregular periods and absent periods. I can't say if that's linked to anemia. Why? Why would too much iron mess up your periods? I have no idea, I'll be honest. Let me Google. Okay, Jules is going to just Google that whilst I go through a, few, through a few more symptoms. So there's also erectile dysfunction. And then as the iron overload builds up, you can end up getting a loss of libido, a darkening of the skin if you are Caucasian. You can have pain and stiffness in the joints, shortness of breath, which again sounds like anemia, heart arrhythmias, so that's when the heart's not beating in the proper rhythm, so it might start fluttering rather than making a proper pump. Why would your heart start fluttering just because of extra iron? The heart's being poisoned. Why? And it... It just flutters instead of stopping? Well, if you start damaging some of the uh, cells a bit at a time, then you're going to have sections that aren't necessarily contracting, so it's going to be an uncoordinated contraction. Uh, there are a couple other symptoms that you can get. Your testicles can get smaller, if you're a man, and liver damage. Liver damage. Is that because... So your liver is where all the toxic stuff in your blood goes, right? Typically, yes. So is that where all the extra iron goes and then builds up there? The liver stores most of your excess iron, yes. And then that poisons it so it can become scarred and damaged. Okay, this one's exciting. I understand this. Yeah, I'm glad this isn't a painful one for you. Has Do Google I... helped? Yes, Google, well, kind of. Oh. <laughs> um, 
Google says that I can't find exactly why too much iron would affect your menstruation because more iron seems to increase the number of cells in the endometrium, which, as I understand it, are the cells that line your uterus that would be shed when you menstruate. Yes. Oh, see, I know things. So I would have thought that having more iron would increase the thickness of your uterine lining and make you have heavier periods. Yeah, that would make sense. But the symptom you said is loss of periods. Yes. So I'm wondering, it says somewhere that if you aren't having a period, you can end up with too much iron because you're not shedding all of that extra blood. Okay. Meaning there's too much too, too much blood and iron left in your system that you can't get rid of another way. So I wonder if it's actually a lack of periods helps cause too much iron rather than too much ironing causing a lack of periods. That's a good hypothesis. I hope someone's done definitive research on that, but that sounds quite likely. I am a scientist confirmed. Well, we'll get you there. No, no, just say yes. Fine. Yes. Thank you. So, yeah. Um so those are the uh the symptoms which obviously as time goes by, they get worse and worse and kind of get scarier and scarier with more iron in your blood. Diagnosis is actually quite straightforward for this condition. Just see how much iron there is? Basically, yeah. So you can do two blood tests. The first blood test is what's called transferrin saturation level. What all this means is it's a measure to work out how much iron is in the blood itself. The second test you do is something called serum ferritin. And that test helps you work out how much iron your body is storing. Your body stores iron? Well, yeah, like how I said, the, the, the liver will store iron. So if you have excess, it will store it in the hopes that it can process and remove it at some point. But obviously your body's struggling with that. So it's storing lots of iron, which means you then have high serum ferritin levels. Okay, so that's pretty easy to diagnose once... A doctor's figured out to give you the right test. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that means that if someone's having symptoms like anemia, it's also good to just do this uh, uh, this um, blood test as well, because you can do them at the same time, and that way you can avoid accidentally diagnosing someone with anemia who has hemochromatosis. Makes sense. Also, you can do a genetic test. And once someone has been diagnosed... Additional blood tests are often done, which are known as liver function blood tests. So remember how I said that the iron buildup in the liver can basically poison the, the liver? Yeah. That changes the amount of enzymes it's producing that end up in your blood. So the blood test measures the amount of enzyme of these liver enzymes in your blood. And if some of them are too high or too low, you know the liver's been damaged. That's how we check for liver damage? Yeah. We don't just look at the liver? Well, the problem is that sometimes it's hard to actually see the damage in the liver, and this is a much easier test to do to find this out. So you could do this test at a GP's. You don't have to go to a hospital and have like an ultrasound or the other test that's done to check the liver damage, which is to anaesthetize the area and then take a biopsy of the liver. So you stick a long needle into your abdomen and you take a small bit of tissue from the liver. 
okay, the the enzyme test makes more sense. Yep. Yep. Much much more welcome, right? Yeah. So those are the tests that you often do. And then patients may also have an MRI test to check for liver damage. A, like, scan of the area? Yeah. Okay. So those are, uh, yeah, those are all the tests that would be taken after diagnosis and that you check. So what's the outlook for somebody that has hemochromatosis? Well, thankfully, in most cases, life expectancy is unaffected. Yay! The more severe the case, the more likely it's going to shorten someone's life expectancy. But no, but you just said a good thing. Don't ruin it. But typically, someone is unaffected. And with treatment, their life expectancy is not affected. Yay! The treatment's quite straightforward for this one. Just take the iron out? Bloodletting. What? Like, like in the, in ye olden days? We do it a little bit more cleanly and in a more delicate fashion now, but yes. Like leeches? This is how you could get covered in leeches? I mean, interestingly, if someone had hemochromatosis in the olden days and someone used leeches on them, that would actually help. Like the one thing leeches would actually have helped with. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so no, they knew what they were doing? Yeah, but we don't do that one and we don't do venesection anymore either, which is, you know, cutting the vein and letting some blood out for a while. Oh, how do we get blood out then? Just like when you donate blood, you just put a needle in, you take some blood out. In the case of uh, people with hemochromatosis, in one go you'll take about 500 ml out, half a litre. Is that lots of blood? I don't really know how much blood we have. It's the same amount of blood that you will donate when you go to a blood drive. Okay. So moderate, but not a problem. And if you've got like an excess of iron, really not a problem for you, because you'll feel a lot better afterwards. And there's an induction phase to the treatment. So to start off with, to try and get those iron levels down, a person will typically have their blood let their bloodletting weekly. Why do you have to have loads of bloodletting instead of why can't your body just get rid of the iron another way like it gets rid of other toxins well that's to do with the mutation that the patients have so we'll get into that in a moment okay so then once you've had the induction period and your blood level your blood iron levels are at a safe level and are more normal and you've had your weekly meeting with the doctor slash vampire yes Actually, you know that we that it, patients do call the uh, the phlebotomists vampires. Do they actually? Yep, yeah. When I was a patient, we all called them the vampires. They all <laughs> they all knew that they were called the vampires. Every hospital I've been to does that. The patients do that. <laughs> I mean, fair. Their whole job is to take blood. They're also the ones that you want to do it because they're the best at it. They always get it first time. But anyway, uh, on that little side note. Once you're trying to just maintain the regular iron levels, then someone will have a bloodletting session typically two to four times a year instead. Oh, that's much easier to maintain. Yeah. Uh, another treatment people have is something called chelation therapy. That's a word I don't know. So what chelation therapy is, is giving someone drugs that bind to the iron in your blood and then get pooed and peed out of your body. Oh, so you make it so that your body can get rid of the iron. Yes. That seems much easier than seeing a vampire. Well, so what would normally happen, I think, is that if you've got really high levels, you'd do both. 
And then once you get to the lower levels, the chelation therapy means that you can have less frequent bloodletting sessions. Okay. Well, think of all the poor vampires put out of business. They have plenty of blood left to take. Another treatment that uh, a lot of patients will need to undergo is dietary changes. Okay. So they might need to ha have a lower iron diet. What kind of foods have iron in them? Meat? Meat, uh, red meat particularly, and a lot of dark green vegetables. Oh no, you don't have to eat spinach anymore. How will you survive? So the so there's that, but there's also some other uh, other dietary changes that need to be considered. Avoiding supplements, because a lot of dietary supplements have iron in them. Can you give yourself this condition? If you take too much iron, yeah. So iron overload. So hemochromatosis is like the hereditary genetic condition, but iron overload is the state of having too much iron in your blood, and you can cause that yourself. Just by taking too many supplements? In theory, yes. What if you just ate loads of steak? You'd probably have a coronary first. Worth it. Anyway, on that dark note, um, other dietary changes um, taken are you shouldn't eat raw oysters or clams if you have hemochromatosis. That's very specific. Yeah, so the reason for that is that both of those shellfish can have some bacteria strains living on them that grow really well in high iron levels. And as a result, people who have lots of iron in their blood can suffer very severe infections from these bacteria. Does everybody else not get that infection? Their iron levels are noticeably lower, so no, not typically. Ah. But if you're taking, for example, iron supplementation and you eat these foods and the bacteria, then your gut will have high levels of iron because you won't absorb all the iron, but you'll have lots of iron in your digestive tract, so then those bacteria can grow there and you can end up with lots and lots of horrible digestive infections. Oh no. Yeah. And uh, another interesting one is that it's recommended to avoid excessive alcohol. Why? So I don't fully understand the physiology of this, but excessive drinking causes a spike in blood iron levels. So when you get hammered on a night out, the next day your blood iron levels are likely to be higher, and then for the next few days they will increase. Ah, that's weird. Yeah, it is. But it means that people with hemochromatosis can have a lot of similar symptoms to alcoholics, which we'll go into a little bit later, but it has resulted in certain stigma. Oh. Okay. So that's a little bit unfortunate. So do alcoholics effectively give themselves iron toxicity? Some. It's not like all alcoholics can get iron overload from drinking excessively, but some can. Weird. It is a bit strange. I would like to understand that a little bit better, and honestly, if any of you out there do know the specific physiology, please drop us a message, because I'd love to know. So, what's the genetics of this? What causes hemochromatosis? Well, you'll be happy to know. This one's not com too complicated. There's none of this sort of transcription factor complica um, complications or anything like that. Don't even say scary words like that. Don't worry. So... Hemochromatosis is an autosomal recessive disorder. Okay, autosomal is non-sex linked, so anybody can have it. 
Recessive means you need the gene from both your mother and your father. Ten points go to Julia. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, that is exactly correct. So you need, so both parents need to be a carrier for you to get the disorder. And the gene that's affected is a gene that's called HFE. Now HFE makes a protein that forms this complex that essentially makes a, like these little sort of iron transport tunnels in your intestines. So you need it in order to absorb iron through the gut into your blood. However, the mutation means that you're not regulating that properly. So where beforehand it might like open and close so that you're taking in the right amount of iron and not too much, it will just basically stay completely open and you will keep on taking in iron regardless of whether or not you have enough already. Okay, so you're so you just keep absorbing iron constantly. Yes. Okay. That one that's it? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I understand. You see the light. Amazing. So yeah, that's um that's what happens. However, there is something a little bit strange. Don't worry, nothing too complicated. But for some reason, only a small proportion of people with two copies of the mutated gene actually develop the illness, and for some other reason that we don't know, men are more likely to develop symptoms. Huh. We don't know why men are more likely? Nope. You'd assume that maybe it has something to do with hormones like testosterone or estrogen, but no one has conclusively proven what the difference is, and no one knows why. If you have two copies of the mutated gene, there is no guarantee that you'll actually ever get this condition. Wait, you can have them and just the the condition doesn't manifest? Yeah. But that's not how genetics works. It is sometimes. No. This is this is why No, too recessive means you have the condition. That's how it works. Don't betray me like this. In most cases, but don't worry. Anyway, we'll move on. So, so it's it's only around about something like ten percent of people who have two copies that actually get the condition, and it could just be how your body interprets it, or something like that. Like you know, obviously there's more research to be had there, but there is an interesting trend in prevalence. Okay, tell me. So. Hemochromatosis is thought to be the most common autosomal recessive condition amongst Caucasians. And when I looked into this, I could only find case rates for Caucasian people. Oh, very interesting. So, this could mean that it's exclusively in Caucasian people, but I think more likely what the case is, is that people haven't actually done the studies to get accurate numbers on other ethnicities which obviously causes a few medical issues because people will inherently assume that people of non-white ethnicities can't get this condition, which leaves people who are patients that aren't white at greater risk of like, of not getting the treatment that they need. Oh dear. Hopefully it's because it's much, much less common though. 10% of all Caucasians are carriers. 10%? Yes. That so, seems really high. Yeah, so we've both met someone who's a carrier, at least one person. Okay, so what does that mean for how many people actually have the condition? 
well, obviously not everyone who has both copies gets it, so the rate is a little bit bit different compared to the um compared to the percentage carriers, but for people of European descent, one in two hundred people born will have hemochromatosis. That's pretty high. Yeah. Well, as I said, it's uh, the most common autosomal recessive condition amongst Caucasians. That's pretty common. Wow. So lots and lots of people have this. Yep. However, it is more common amongst people of a Celtic background, hence the name the Celtic Curse. Oh. How common is it for them? Well, for Irish people, for whom it's most common, one in five are carriers. And 1 in 83 Irish people have the condition. That's real high. Yeah, that's very common. I mean, at least I guess it means the doctors know to look out for it. Yeah, if you live in Ireland, this is something that people that doctors have their eye on. So, if you're a vampire, move to Ireland. Yeah, yeah, Dublin's a great place for bloodletting, it seems. No, I mean, like, full-on sucking people's blood, but whatever. Ew. Anyway, unsurprisingly, this iron overload does result in other diseases being associated with hemochromatosis. Always does. I know, I know. This is your least favourite section, but it's worth covering before the break. So, liver failure is fairly common for hemochromatosis if it's not managed. What happens when you have liver failure? So, a liver transplant would be needed. Oh. But... A good thing with the liver, which is quite strange, is that someone can donate a fraction of their liver to you, and within a certain amount of time, I believe it's like a year to 18 months, it will grow into a full liver, and their liver will have recovered and grown back to its normal size. Whoa! It's a really cool organ. So you can just get a bit of liver? Yeah, obviously of a certain size. You can't like give someone like a, a 5p coin sized um piece of liver. And for those of you who are not British, a 5p coin is about the size of, well, it's about the diameter of your little finger knuckle. <laughs> that was very specific. <laughs> well, you've got to be specific, otherwise no one knows what the coin is. So, other illnesses associated with hemochromatosis include diabetes. Oh, why? Because the iron overload poisons the pancreas and then the damaged pancreas can't produce insulin effectively. That sucks. Yeah, there's a, an unnerving number of disorders with, met with metabolic effects that cause diabetes. You can also get severe arthritis. Again, if the joints get poisoned by iron, it's a simple way of thinking of it, and they get damaged, then they get inflamed, and then the inflammation causes more damage, and then that's arthritis. And then you are sad and in pain. Yeah. As another side note, uh, erectile dysfunction can be a problem. So there can be some fertility issues around hemochromatosis if you're unable to manage the iron levels in your blood. Oh. So it's a little bit sad. But thankfully, it is quite easy to treat. And when we get to the next bit, um, after the break, we're going to have some quite fun stories for the history. And we're going to take a look at what's around the corner for future treatments. Great, let's go to the break.
Welcome back, everyone. History time! Yeah, it's history time. Tell me all the things. Okay, what do you want to know first? Where is this from? Okay, so in theory, this condition originates from the Neolithic era. Ooh, that's old. Yeah, so this um, this is thought to potentially have happened when humans migrated to Europe and had to be able to take in more iron from their lower iron diets. Ooh. So, so those that got a mutation to take in more iron had a better chance of surviving? Yes. Ooh. So the, the uh, food that was available in Europe in the colder climates contained less iron than the food that was available in like Africa and the Arabian Peninsula at the time. Ooh, how interesting. So, yeah, I think that's really cool. And uh, interestingly, there are surveys that show a particular distribution pattern with um, large clusters of this uh, gene mutation, so, you know, lots of collections of it, along the Western European coastline. And this has led to the development of what's known as the Viking hypothesis. Ooh, was this spread by Vikings? So, patterns of mutations have been correlated closely to Norse settlements established in Europe between 700 and 1100 AD. And this suggests that, yes, hemochromatosis was probably proliferated by people of Viking heritage. Well, that's so interesting. Interestingly as well, one of the mutations for hemochromatosis, because, you know, a lot of these, it's one gene but different mutations, was dated back to before 4000 BC. Whoa! So we know that this condition is at least 6,000 years old. Looking at the evolutionary uh, benefits of it in the history, we know that it, w it could be as much as 40,000 years old, and it's possible that it could be even older than that if it's something that has resulted from admixture with Neanderthals who were in Northern Europe for much earlier than Homo sapiens were. So when the Homo sapiens moved in, uh, they mated with Neanderthals and picked up this mutation? Yeah, and that would be a very quick way to adapt to that environment. Ah. Obviously, that one hasn't been proven, but it would be interesting for more experiments uh, to be conducted to actually test that hypothesis. So in this case, it's not we're not really thinking about how did this illness not get selected against it was actually a benefit to people yeah because we didn't have enough iron in our diet at the time for this to be a problem we needed to absorb more it's just us eating so many hamburgers now that make it a problem yeah modern diets is part of the issue Ooh. so yeah, i think that's quite interesting and obviously as we just said that's obviously historically advantageous to have the mutation but also another reason why it probably survived is that for it to actually cause a disease, you need two copies, but then only a small proportion of people actually get that. So there's probably a lot of people that have been able to absorb more iron with this mutation without having any disease effects, even with two copies. Wow. So there's quite a lot of reasons for this to have stayed around for so long. As for why it's so common in Celtic populations, is that the Vikings? Maybe. It's hard to say. I don't 
I couldn't find anything that really gave me a very clear story on that. And it could also be that with people like like populations like Ireland, yes, the Vikings did populate areas of Ireland. Dublin was a Norse city. And it's possible that through that um, interbreeding of Irish and Viking people, that they were they inherited this condition. And then because Ireland has always had quite a small population, it's then grown almost like a founder mutation. Hmm. So it might be so prevalent just because the, that population was slightly more isolated. Yes. But obviously that is just a hypothesis. So what about the more modern history about this? When did we figure it out? So the term hemochromatosis itself was first used by a German pathologist called Friedrich Daniel von Richtlinghausen. And in 1890, he described an accumulation of iron in the body tissues, which is why sometimes it gets called von Recklinghausen disease. I don't think he named it after himself, though. I think this was one of these instances where other people named it after him. I mean, that's a good name. I'll take that one. Yeah, okay. In 1935, so a decent amount of time later, a British physician called J.H. Sheldon described the link to iron metabolism for the first time, as well as, as well as demonstrating the hereditary nature of hemochromatosis. The link to iron metabolism? So the fact that, we, that uh, iron is actually taken in and is used. Oh, okay. And it wasn't until 1996 that the gene itself was actually identified. And this was by a researcher called Felder and his colleagues. Cool. And that's not too surprising. Obviously, the genetics revolution is fairly recent. So, where are we headed now in treating hemochromatosis? Well, there are some current clinical trials for new iron chelating drugs. So, remember, they're the, remember, they're the drugs that help you remove iron from your blood via your pee and poo. Yeah. And there's also a blood pressure medication called nephipidine that is being tested to help with hemochromatosis. Blood pressure? Yeah, it seems a little bit strange, so I looked into this. Um, so this specific blood pressure medication drug, nephipidine, has an interesting side effect of slowing iron transport. So stopping your body moving iron around? Decreasing the, um, decreasing the rate at which you take in iron. Ah, okay. So this could help slow the build-up of iron in the first place. Mm. So that's quite an interesting one. There's also gene therapy that's being discussed, but currently there is no publications that are implying that anything has reached the preclinical or clinical stage. It also feels like this one's pretty treatable. This one's very manageable, yeah. As far as things go, it's not something that necessarily needs gene therapy to the same extent as a lot of other conditions. But at the same time, if you can give someone a cure, that's obviously very beneficial. Yeah. So this is the part of the show where we like to discuss the stigmas around this condition. So at first thought, I wouldn't think there'd be that many around this. It doesn't seem like it causes huge amount of physical traits. Mm -hmm. but what are What are the stigmas? Well, I think one thing that's worth noting is that the uh, Celtic curse 
as it's also known, is particularly common amongst Irish people. And some of the symptoms include being very flush-faced, being very tired, and a lot of symptoms that are also associated with alcoholism. And being flush-faced can also be something that you can get from being drunk. And it's quite likely that this helped birth the stigma of Irish people being drunks. So this has been used alongside... This has probably provided some fodder for racist rhetoric. Oh, okay. So that's the first thing to discuss, that Irish people are not in fact drunks, and that a lot of symptoms that can be associated with alcoholism may well be hemochromatosis, because one in 83 Irish people have hemochromatosis. Yeah, so so this is a good one to bust. Yeah, yeah, this, like, don't be racist. Quite, quite straightforward, really. <laughs> there are a few myths around hemochromatosis as well, which is worth... The, which is worth dispelling. So, first one is that hemochromatosis is rare. No, you yeah. said it's very common. Yeah, it's really common. So, no. Surprising not it's not more well known, because, like, we all have heard of anemia. Yeah, yeah, it is a bit strange, but I guess people don't, you know, a lot of people don't like talking about their health in general. You either have people that won't talk about their health at all, or you have people like me who share too much about their health. I wonder if it's another one where it can be difficult to get initial diagnoses as well, because yes. because it's those kind of generic symptoms of fatigue. Yeah, it is. It is actually quite difficult to diagnose because of the generic symptoms. So you need someone to think, is this anemia or is it something else, and take that additional test. Otherwise, what happens is someone then gets given iron supplementation because they think they're anemic. Which makes everything worse. Yeah. Another myth that needs to be dispelled is that women are not affected by hemochromatosis. Oh, is this because you said the symptoms are more likely to appear in men? Yes. So there's a reason for this myth, but it's not true. Women do get affected by hemochromatosis, and a decent number of them get affected. Another myth is that most hemochromatosis patients are alcoholics. No, we've just discussed this. Yeah, so this is a misconception that um, stems from the fact that most al alcoholics have elevations in serum ferritin levels. So that's like the stored, the, the proxy for stored iron in your body. And some patients with alcoholic liver disease have increased iron deposition in the liver as well. So it's just all the symptoms look very similar. Yeah, there's a bit of an overlap that has then led to some misconceptions, some stigma, and as I said before, some of it's possibly been fueled by historical racist rhetoric. If you look particularly in the 1800s at anti-Irish propaganda, it is really blatantly racist. Yeah. So it's one of these things that it's worth bearing in mind when you hear about hemochromatosis and alcoholism. Another myth that needs to be addressed is that patients should be on a low iron diet. This isn't necessarily true. Dietary restriction can be important, but obviously things like iron chelating drugs and bloodletting can control these things appropriately so that you can have whatever diet is achievable for you. So if 
if you get diagnosed with hemochromatosis, it doesn't mean you don't get to eat steak ever again. No, no. And if you have hemochromatosis, there's a good chance that your doctor will then refer you to a dietitian who will then go through what sort of dietary recommendations they think that you should follow based on your current health. Don't follow other people's recommendations on what you should be eating for this. Always talk to your doctor. Yes. Another misconception or myth is that elevated hemoglobin is common in hemochromatosis. Now this isn't actually true. You can have normal hemoglobin levels, you can sometimes have low hemoglobin levels, which has led to misdiagnosis of anemia for hemochromatosis patients before. That's so confusing. Yeah, it is quite strange. Um, I wonder if it's that the excessive iron is kind of like poisoning the cells and therefore they're not producing as much hemoglobin, but I'm not certain on that. Hmm. It'd be much simpler if it manifested differently from anemia. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely made diagnosis difficult. So, yeah, and um, with that, we are actually at the end of the episode. I understood this one. Yeah, I'm proud of you for that. Thank you. You're very welcome. That was really good. So I do have a little bit of reading for you. If you want to learn a little bit more about hemochromatosis, then there's a nice article to read that is called The Myths and Realities of Hemochromatosis by Beaton and Adams. Great. And if you want to get in touch with us with any questions, comments, suggestions, uh, do that with us on Facebook or on Twitter at GeneticDrift1 or email us at GeneticDriftPodcast at gmail.com. Yes, and on that, I just need to say the music for this podcast, as with every episode, is produced by William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. And on the back of that, I'm going to say withhold your judgment because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.